on day one of Sailing Fest after the Talking Twilight Zone in the 21st Century panel, attendees got the chance to speak with the lineup of authors present who have all contributed to the conversation about Rod Sailing and the Twilight Zone in their own way. And this is when we had scheduled the Twilight Zone podcast live. And while a technical difficulty at the venue stopped me from broadcasting to the room, I still took the opportunity to chat briefly with the authors between signings. Martin Grams Jr., author of Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. Okay, I am sitting here with a gentleman whose name I must have mentioned about a million times on the podcast because we have the Twilight Zone companion, but I think my Twilight Zone Bible is unlocking the door to a television classic. Martin Grams Jr., thanks for speaking to me, man. Oh, pleasure meeting you in person and being on the show. I've spoken to a lot of people today, and they, a lot of people assume that you would be an older gentleman, but you're not. You're, you're, a very, you're very young, and... What attracts you to this era of, of entertainment? Because I have your radio book, you know, you do the Twilight Zone book, the Shadow book is, is abso- absolutely amazing. So what attracts you to that particular era? Um, I've always have, just since I was a kid. I guess exposure to old-time radio when I was probably eight or nine years old. And then after that, I just, you know, took off from there. And black and white is not a stigma to me, as opposed to the older, younger generation of today. So, you know... It's just something I've always have. For a Twilight Zone fan, maybe, who is um, interested in getting into classic radio, what would you say a good show to start out with is? Oh, you mean radio program? Um, I like The Mysterious Traveler. It's an old-time radio show from the 40s. Um, probably almost every episode has a twist ending. Some of them are inspired later for Twilight Zone, such as the one we're back there where Russell Johnson goes back in time and he actually tries to stop Lincoln from being assassinated that was done on the Mysterious Traveler but they had their own different twist ending but Rod Serling admitted he liked listening to that show so that's the one I would say probably after that suspense which ran a long time period but certain years of that radio show are more primitive and then others were at their prime but it's Twilight Zone like where there was always a twist ending at the end so I recommend that one as well if they want to continue hearing and enjoying a lot of those similar Twilight Zone type stories especially on old time radio so in a world that had the Twilight Zone companion, well, how did you come to do your book? Uh, how I did my book was probably a little unorthodox. Uh, I just decided I wanted to do one. But a friend of mine convinced me. He called me up and said he had 63 banker boxes of all this material regarding Twilight Zone and Rod Serling. And I humored him and said, yeah, okay, I'll come over next time to see this. And turns out when I looked through them initially, I see... Uh, his tax records with his social security numbers. This is how in-depth this material is. A large percentage of them were Xerox copies from various archives across the country. Others were original material. Apparently, whoever he got it from, we can only assume, because he could not find out the origin of the material, just the buyer, that someone was just gathering this material, maybe to do a book. So I took it all home, and I hated driving in the snow, and it's been like 10 years, and I'm not driving in the snow again. And I go through it all, and within like a day or two, I realized there is enough material here for a book. But as a geek, I also realized it was answering questions I never knew I had questions. Uh, third season opening, you get that little spiral that spins around and gets smaller. I never realized that was the top of a spinning satellite. Apparently, I read an inner office memo, and I go, oh, okay, that's what that is. And then I started noticing some discrepancies to what was already in print in other Twilight Zone books. And I realized what we have is more authoritative and definitive, whereas the others were relying on, say, recollections from cast and crew, and their memories were a little faded. So I realized it's an opportunity to debunk myths and misconceptions, make some corrections, but also provide so much more material. I mean, who knew there was a permits to film on location for the hitchhiker or that the gas station signs for all the gas had to be fictional because of product placement to avoid. Um, I did not know that he tried twice beforehand during the year to create a production company to create Twilight Zone, but it was like Joanne uh, Productions, which was named after his two children, Jody and Ann, and so on. So it basically provides so much more material, and that's why I just decided, screw it, I'm going to spend all winter and I'm going to put this whole thing into a book and 
as I got each chapter done, I forwarded it to the proofreaders, and by the time I got to the last, I guess the appendix, it was the last section of the book, um, seventh proofreader had just finished the section right before that. So it really came together pretty quick, and I guess the stars were aligned. I mean, it, it is so comprehensive. What, where did you draw the line, or was it just like, if I can find it, I'll put it in? Um, I know the only thing we took out, because the printers assured me if the book was any bigger, they could not guarantee the spine. So I think we took out an appendix or two at the very end, and it was primarily, um, I think we stopped at the comic books, but there were some other like product placements, products that were done like board games and things, and I figured we can't include everything, but it's focusing on the original versus the 80s and the 90s series, so I th figured we'll just cut it off there. It was the easiest way to shorten the book down to the proper length, so... I think I've done articles and reprinted that material since then, so people could at least see what never made it into the book. But for the most part, it was all trivial and consistent, you know, minutia. Nothing like this book. But the best part of it is it did accomplish what I hoped it would. Not that I was, at the time writing it, that people would want to do this. But for me, and in other words, I was looking at what I wanted as a book. You could watch a, a marathon on, say, Sci-Fi Channel, and you could open up the entries, and you could see all these little bits of trivia, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, there's a shadow of the boom mic in the one corner in the one scene. Or, oh, that's how they did that special effect. That's the guy's original name was this, and that's why he's accidentally referred to in one scene by this name versus the rest of the episode where it's a different name because they never changed the page in the script. So it's geek stuff, but for those who have already seen the episodes multiple times, it's an opportunity to enjoy the show one more time. Absolutely. But you, uh, you decided not to put any sort of personal opinion in there or reviews or anything like that. You've, you've just went with the facts, haven't you? Correct. Um, analytical views are nice to read, but it's not facts. And in many cases, not everybody wants to read critical reviews or analytical viewpoints. I think there's a couple books already on that. And since it's always um, based on various opinions, you could have 1,500 books all in different critical analysis. So I leave that to everybody else. And my rule of thumb is I did my book, I moved on. I'm glad it helps everybody like you, but a lot of people, this weekend has been nice. There's a guy from Ireland who told me how he's used the book to do magazine articles over there in fanzines. One guy from Brazil said he did a, a treatise on time travel and he used my book as some point of reference for some material. So it's amazing how far it has gone and accomplished and made people happy and done more than I could ever imagine the book would have done. I, I adore your shadow book. I, I don't even listen to the shadow. Or I, I've, I've heard a couple of episodes, and but I just love the detail in it. Is there anything else you're working on at the moment that you can tell us about? I'm always working on books. Yeah. I, I always find I can spend a decade researching, not on like Twilight Zone where I knew the material and it was, a lot of it was there. But in a lot of things like, say, The Lone Ranger, I've been at it for 15 years. And I just finished the rough draft, and it's now being in the first proofreader's hands, the whole manuscript. So sometimes I say you can spend a decade researching, but it only takes 10 weeks to type it because it's really just data entry. It's just putting it in a text format or prose. And then the proofreaders will always make me look better than I am anyway. So once it's done, I pass it on to the first proofreader. And until it looks really spectacular, versus what I used to have. I just let it keep going from one person to another while I'm on to the next project. So right now, right now I'm working on The Lone Range. That one's done, and um, a Tallulah Bankhead book just got published today, but I didn't get them in time uh, to bring here. And then the other one that is Truth or Consequences, the quiz show, which is actually at the graphic designer right now. So in about a month, that'll probably be indexed and then go into the printers. Well, Martin, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and just thank you for your book i honestly i couldn't do what i do without it so thank you so much man you're very welcome i'm glad it helps you and everybody else who's been able to get a copy and you know fill in the gaps and help answer questions tony alberella editor of the as timeless as infinity the twilight zone scripts of rod sailing book series i'm sat here with I guess the editor of the most prestigious, I think, set of books related to the Twilight Zone, Tony Alberella. Tony, thanks for speaking to me, man. Oh, thanks so much, Tom. It's a pleasure. Tony, could you just talk us through the, what, what we've got in front of us here, you, the books that you edited and, and what's in them? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the uh, entire series, is, actually it was a 
12-year odyssey. There's 10 different volumes of hardcover signed limiteds. Um, they were they were they were produced by uh, Gauntlet Press as a as a signed limited. They they specialize in signed limited editions. So every one of these was signed by Carol Serling, with certain additional, um, more exclusive and more limited editions of those sub editions um, that were signed by people who contributed, like Cliff Robertson, and a whole bunch of other different producers and actors and such. But primarily, the reason for them being is is uh, to produce Rod's original Twilight Zone scripts in their original format, and these are Rod's original scripts. I had gotten copies and had the honor of being able to sift through his his uh, his his script um, collection that was donated to Ithaca College back in the 70s, and uh, find certain extra lines, extra scenes, additional scenes, uh, some alternate endings in some cases. So I was able to pull together things that people had never seen before and get them out to the public, which was really my my great pleasure. And um, we reprinted them in this hardcover edition. Uh, they're a little expensive, and they, they're therefore not reachable to everyone. But they uh, they do reproduce the scripts in the format that uh, that have some of hand, Rod's handwritten corrections, and they uh, they uh, feel like you're holding a script because they're the full size. And there's also other supplemental material. And I did well over a hundred interviews with. Uh, at the time, a bunch of the people were still alive. It was a good time to catch everyone, um, writers, producers, actors, directors, and uh, had some wonderful participation from people. So I wrote some you know, essays about each one of the, of the uh, scripts, and so each one of those are in the book also. And then when we were all done, just to make it a little bit more affordable, we put out a, a best of in paperback, which uh, is a little bit smaller. It's a trade paperback size, but it, but it does take, um, I believe it was 10 of Rod's really, really classic scripts and, and combines them in that one edition. Now, I understand you, you got permission to reprint them. Was there any conditions? Did, did Carol give you any conditions? Well, you can do it, but you, you need to do this, anything like that. There were some things I ran past her, but luckily I knew her. Uh, through the foundation and as a friend so uh, she did trust me to do a good job with them and didn't really place any conditions on me uh, she did approve of the cover art she liked to have a hand in that um, there were when I found additional scenes I asked her if she'd like to, if I, I told her I'd like them to be in the book and she had no trouble with that um, the only per, the only the only condition if you can call it that is that I was wondering if she can put the happy place in there because I did that was also one of the scripts that were available and of course it was never produced but because it was unproduced, she really didn't want to. She didn't want to include it in this edition, which I was absolutely fine with. But uh, uh, other than that, no, she was she was very generous with uh, both her input and and her uh, her free reign on whatever I whatever decisions I made. Could you tell us maybe about? So you're going through this material. Any little gems you found, whether it's alternate scenes or, or something, something that sticks out in your head is like, wow, this this is gold. Um, it may not be one of the most classic episodes, but there was an alternate ending to um, Most Unusual Camera. And when I discovered that, 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 that really was just interesting to see. And um, let's see, there's probably Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up. There was a little bit at the end where the ending was slightly different. And uh, it turns out that both the, the Martian and the Venus were working together. Uh, so that was a little different. And uh, first time I came across these and read these, as you know, obviously it was new information to me. So it's, to stumble across that was just a, a real kick. And then to be able to work that into a, some kind of format that would be able to uh, be available to the public in some form or to future researchers, that was, that was just a wonderful thing to do. Because uh, I know a lot of the, a lot of the uh, episodes had been reproduced in the Twilight Zone magazine and available over the years in different ways, not really in book form. But this really was the first time that we not only get the whole collection out there, but, but these rare original versions of them. So when you moved on to like El Hamner's book, did you collaborate with him directly on that one? Yeah, actually, that was first. That was back in 2003, and that actually led into the uh, the whole Atai series. I was lucky enough. When I first met Earl, um, I wanted to do a magazine article on him because he wasn't really known for his Twilight Zone work, and he was so famous for his Walton's work. And he was more than gracious. He loved the idea, so we did a magazine article together. And then he was so gracious and so uh, appreciative of being remembered for this lost area of his work. And we had called the, the 
article we put together, we had called it the Forgotten Twilight Zone writer. Um, he was so gracious to be remembered for this segment of his work where he really started in the television industry and, and really admired Rod and loved the work that he had done for the Twilight Zone, that Earl himself had done for the Twilight Zone, that he asked me if I wanted to do a book with him through his publisher. So of course, uh, you know, it would be a joy. So we did that. And, uh, and by the way, Earl was uh, such an incredible person. I mean, he, he became not only a, a close contact, but a, a friend. He used to call me out of the blue and ask about my children. He was that kind of a guy. I mean, they always tell you, never meet your heroes because you'll be disappointed. If, if you're picturing Earl as the, as the Walton's guy and you have a thought in your mind about what he's like, I, I can only tell you he was, in real life he was uh, even better than that. He was just such a gracious, wonderful friend, dearly missed. But uh, I'm sorry, I digressed. But um, um, because of that work uh, and because I was a member of the foundation, Gauntlet Press contacted me about doing the same thing for Rod Serling's scripts. And uh, I knew Carol, so we were able to put that whole thing together from there. But uh, the Hamner book really did lead to the uh, production of the Serling books. Great. Tony, um, thank you so much for sharing your insights. I, I really do think it's, it's a beautiful collection, the most, probably the most prestigious out there so thank you so much for speaking to me man thank you so much tom and thank you so much for doing your show which i greatly enjoy and and to your listeners keep it up it's just it's a wonderful asset to have thank you thank you man thank you alan schumer author of visions from the twilight zone now one of my favorite interviews that i ever did was with the man sitting next to me right here and i'm so thrilled to meet you in the flesh right it's, back it, at you. it's a genuine honor Arlen how's it going I'm now that I'm here and now that you're here and we're meeting for the first time I'm a happy boy I mean this is what it's all about getting together meeting people you've only corresponded with meeting Twilight Zone fans that have been around for years um, but you know that's social media but getting together at conventions like this is really what it's all about is getting to meet the real people, getting to meet you, you know. I've only known you as a voice and, you know, email address. And so, yeah, but it's great to be here amongst, you know, uh, very serious, sincere Twilight Zone fans. Well, it's good to see you, man. Last time we spoke, we spoke a lot about visions from the Twilight Zone. You know, I explained why it was one of my favorite books, because it is so... It reminds me of that, that half dreamlike state that I first watched The Twilight Zone in. So what, what's new with you in, in the Twilight Zone world? Well, I continue to do my multimedia live presentation based on the book in which I kind of, I, I used to call it Twilight Zone forever. Now because of the 60th anniversary, I'm just calling it the 60th anniversary, but I basically go through the Twilight Zone and show how it was the middle ground, pun intended, between surrealism that preceded the Twilight Zone and then psychedelia, modern art, and popular culture that's followed the Twilight Zone, that's been influenced by it, or that's ripped it off or paid homage to it. Because that's my belief, is that the Twilight Zone itself and Rod Serling, I call them the fathers of American popular culture. Because any science fiction, fantasy, or horror product that's currently being made, I can trace back to Serling and the Twilight Zone in what I call Six Degrees of Serling, which is a pun on Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. But that's really true. And all of our modern fantasy makers... George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, David Lynch, Stephen King, J.J. Abrams, the list goes on and on. They are all Serling's metaphorical children. Even though he had two daughters, one of whom is here, and Serling, you know, and I'd like to think I'm the son Rod Serling never had because I'm honoring his work and his legacy the way I would imagine a son would honor his father. My father died when I was four months old. So I feel like what I'm doing with my body of Twilight Zone works um, is my way of honoring him and keeping not only his spirit alive, but keeping the images and the words and the impact and influence of the Twilight Zone. And to see a kind of a renewal between the new CBS series, the fact that they're going to make a Serling biopic, I heard. Um, and just the fact that now, because of social media, there are websites that are run by younger people that are into the Twilight Zone. It's very encouraging. 
to know that a show that I've been saying for literally decades is timeless as infinity, to, to quote Serling, but I've always maintained it's not just some old black and white TV show. It's, it's still current. It still speaks to us. I mean, the definition of art is that it's both of its time and is timeless. So when we look at, let's say, Picasso's Guernica, it was originally about, you know, the bombing of Guernica in 1936. But the reason why art historians still t discuss it now is because it's still a timeless image that speaks about the horror of war no matter what time period. And the greatest Twilight Zone episodes are just like that. They, they look like they could be filmed yesterday. They don't look dated, especially with the new Blu-rays. Are you kidding me? They look like they were shot in the East Village in an experimental theater downtown, where I used to live, by the way. Anyway, um, but I digress, or <laughs> don't I digress? I hope that answered your question. I can't even remember what the question That's was. What I mean. <laughs> I, you know, it, it, there's no off switch, you know what I mean? It's like once you ask me to start talking Twilight Zone, I can go on and on. I, I know, man. I've been there. I've been there. But <laughs> we had to do a two-part podcast because how can you only talk about the Twilight Zone in a half hour? I mean, you know. Exactly, exactly. Now, you're going to do your multimedia presentation here at Sailing Fest, aren't you? Yes, but it's only I only have an hour. My, my full-length show, which um, if people reach out to me, I, obviously you're going to give them my website, email address. I can point them to a video of the full-length show that I did in New York City back in March, right before the new series debuted. I wanted to show people, like, you, you know this new show you've been hearing about, Jordan Peele? I'm going to show you the original. So I timed it March 30th, right before the series dropped on April 1st. So, um, um, but for here, I only have an hour, so it's going to be a kind of an abridged, tighter, shorter version. But believe me, I still cover a lot of ground. And I call what I do visual lectures because lecture is a pejorative. It sounds, you know, like you're being lectured to. But there's really no other word other than lecture. I mean, when you say presentation, that could be anything. Um, so when I say I'm doing a live multimedia presentation, I'm trying not to use the word lecture, but I tried to brand it by calling them visual lectures because even in 45 minutes, I will show you 500 images, but I make them move quickly and I transition. And, you know, there's always an image changing on the screen as I'm talking. So, you know, people, there's a lot to die. I pack it in, a lot of content. So even in that hour, I'm going to cut. Listen, I may not even finish in an hour. They're going to have to, you know, play me off, as they say. But, you know, hopefully, you know, I'll be done in an hour. But like I said, it'll still be, you know, chock full. I'm hoping their video, I don't know if they're going to be documenting these things and whether people will be able to see them. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know. Now, Arlen, I know you're a kind of, I don't know what the word for it is, originalist maybe, like for you. Bond is Sean Connery, that kind of thing. So with Twilight Zone, it, it's the original series. I saw one of your Facebook posts about the new series. So let's, let's just tackle that. Maybe leave some of the swear words out. You know, you're you're going to make me throw up the lunch that I had a couple hours ago. Okay, you're talking about the Jordan Peele series? Yeah. Okay. We were all excited because of Jordan Peele and Get Out was very Twilight Zone-ish. We didn't know about the new movie Us yet because that came out, you know, after the new series debuted. But based on Get Out and then when it was announced that, oh, Jordan Peele, we're like, finally they got somebody that at least is not just a host. He's a creator and he's got that Twilight Zone sensibility. Then what happens? You would think he was handed this legacy. You would think the first episode, number one, you're supposed to lead with your strongest episode. You would think he would have led with an episode that he wrote and directed himself. As if to say to the world and, and to CBS, thank you for handing me this incredible legacy. Here is now my take on it. Instead, he became, listen, he's the hottest producer, um, you know, producer director in Hollywood because you know his production company he's spread thin he's doing a lot of things 
but he obviously just farmed out Twilight Zone to various writers and directors. And I thought most of the epic, first of all, they're all too long. Black Mirror suffers from this. Outer Limits are all padded. The hour-long Twilight Zones are horrible, except for two. Thursday, we leave for Home and Death Ship. The reason being, and I'm, I'm, I'm really into this, the half-hour Twilight Zones, at their best, packed in so much in 25 minutes. The initial surly introduction hooks you in. They set up the premise. They leave you hanging at the halfway point. And then you get that last 12-minute, the climax and the build-up and the surprise ending. The amount of deep philosophy and heaviness of, of some of these episodes in terms of their themes, which are all the great themes of art and, and literature, life and death, good and evil, love, hate. To do that in 25 minutes, this is why you can teach The Twilight Zone. Every one of these great half hours is a primer on the art of economical, terse storytelling in which in 25 minutes you can tell a complete story with meaning, with, with meat, with gist. And yet, all these new filmmakers, they're all afraid of this half-hour format, as if to say, oh, I'm so great, I can't be limited to just the half-hour. Meanwhile, in the golden age of television that we're in today, some of the best half-hour comedies, they're not really comedies, they're dramedies, but I'm thinking of shows like Better Things by Pamela Adlon, and even Louis C.K. when he was on, and some of these other half-hour shows are doing it in a half hour, and yet all of these fantasy shows all are over a half hour, and they suffer from it. Every one of the new Twilight Zones was too long. Sorry, but like I said, I have arguments with Outer Limits fans. I said all of them are bloated. I would love to give all of these hour-long shows to a professional television editor and tell them, bring them down to a half hour. I guarantee you they would all be eminently more watchable. But that's, you know, I might be in the minority about that. So are you done with it, you think? You think you tried it, you're not going to... Listen, you know, it's my duty. I, I, you got to see it just so you can talk about it. You know, the problem with the new one... Oh, and then, of course, they're all shot in color. You know, the Twilight Zone is the middle ground between light and shadow. People are caught between black and white. They're in the Twilight Zone is that gray area between reality and unreality. It's a it's a black and white concept. Now I'm an artist. I understand that. But when I interviewed George T. Clemens, the original director of photography, back in 1988 for my original book, when he was an old man living in a trailer, he's deceased now. But we talked about this, and I quote him in my book and my lectures. Early in Twilight Zone's run, because it had low ratings, there was pressure on Serling, almost from the get-go, to try out the new color television, to be the first CBS series in color. And he was tempted because if it got higher ratings, blah, 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 more money, this, that, the other thing. George Clemens protested vehemently, and he said to Serling, we can't give you the Twilight Zone feeling in black and white, in color, as well as we can in black and white. Now, Clemens, like all those directors, they didn't see themselves as artists, like we think of as artists. They were Hollywood craftsmen, and they were proud of it. We consider them artists. For George Clemens to say that as a Hollywood craftsman tells me he was an instinctive artist because what he was saying to Serling was exactly that, the Twilight Zone feeling whatever that is, and we all know what that is, we may not be able to articulate it. I try to articulate it, but to, to be able to say that understands the meaning of black and white. And yet every single remake of The Twilight Zone, starting with Spielberg's horrible movie, has been shot in color. And to me, right off the bat, I'm disappointed. The minute I know they're in color. And so between that and the length, and then you get to, okay, so the actual stories themselves, you know, they were a mixed bag, but they paid homage, you know, to the early Twilight Zones. Eh, I'd you know, Black Mirror is more of an, a correct homage to the Twilight Zone than the new Twilight Zone. Even though all the episodes of Black Mirror are mostly, you know, about technology, at least Charlie Brooker or Booker, what is it, Brooker? 
he's a better homage payer to the Twilight Zone than Jordan Peele is showing to be. You know? And, and, but again, many of the black mirrors are overlong. They should all be trimmed down to a half hour. But anyway, um, and then the last episode of Peele's thing when they brought, they had an actor playing Serling and then they CGI, it was ghoulish. I thought that was horrible. But obviously, either the Serling people, okay, I don't know what they had to go through to do that. And I understand his heart was in the right place. I just found that to be ghoulish. And, you know, when, they, when they've done that in commercials, when they take a dead person, I've heard talk that they want to send Whitney Houston's um, hologram in concert, and people will pay to see that. So I just find that ghoulish. Pay homage to the Twilight Zone by shooting in black and white, being a half hour, being stories about current themes in our society, which is what you should be doing, which is what Brooker is doing. That's how you pay homage to Serling. You know, and even Peel, by deciding to be the introducer, listen, he was a sketch comic. He's not a real actor. And I find, I, I started, do I like what he's doing, introducing? Nah, not really. They should have had me. I, I could have done that show. Yeah, I'm saying there's a way to do it. But, you know, at least they hired somebody with a Twilight Zone sensibility. I was just surprised that he didn't write or direct. And, you know, the episode he led off with, the comedian. By the way, the, the, the actor I heard just got Emmy nominated. I thought that was a horrible episode, you know? And it was based on a night gallery episode. Not even a... Listen, you got me started. I'd rather talk about the Twilights on the original. <laughs> Why are you having me talk about these horrible remakes? Well, <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. we spend a lot of time talking about the bad. I'd rather talk about the great, the good. Okay, okay. Well, Am I right, Zach? I agree. <laughs> the strong silent type over here. He is, he is. Well, Arlen, I, I, I understand there is a new version we spoke about it last time of visions from the twilight zone i do hope we get to see it one day well listen you're mouth to god's ears we'll we'll see what happens if life were fair the book would be out already and everybody would have it but uh you know newsflash life isn't fair but i have hope i i you know we'll see what happens i i need to find like a strong publisher that believes in it that will go to cbs and sort of really be make, you gotta be aggressive with them to yeah. cut a licensing deal. But listen, maybe somebody listening in, you know, hear it, reach out to me, and you know, you never know. You All never. All it takes is one person to make a difference, and I'm looking for that one publisher or that one person that could help make it happen. Well, I hope so, man, I hope so. We we'll leave it there, Arlen, but I do hope we can get together maybe over Skype, and you know, it's always good to speak Anytime, to you. Anytime, Tom, listen. Anytime you want to talk Twilight Zone or anything, I always am available to you. And listen, I love talking about this stuff, so trust me. Uh, I wish we did a regular thing together all the time. I mean, I would love that. Make it so. <laughs> Thank you, Arlen. Thank you. Mark DeWitziak, author of Everything I Need to Know, I Learned in the Twilight Zone. I am standing here with a gentleman in Binghamton and I've, I've wanted to speak to you for a while. I actually, when your book came out, I emailed the website, but I think it might have went in your spam box because we never actually spoke, but um, I'm here with, yeah, well, we're, we're going to fix that right now. Mark DeWidziak, thank you for speaking to me. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's a favorite topic here, the Twilight Zone. I'll, you, you may not get rid of me at this point. <laughs> Well, the thing is, whenever a new Twilight Zone book comes out, my first thought is, what's, what's different about this one? Now, yours takes a, a very different approach than pretty much all the other ones out there. Could you just explain how you approach the Twilight Zone? Sure. Can, can I tell you a quick story? Yeah. How, did, how that came about? See, um, in the early 1980s, I was working on my first book, and, which was published in 1982. And when I was getting ready for that book to be published, I knew what my second book was going to be. I had, had no doubt at all. It was going to be The History of the Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. And I set out to write that book. Why not me? 
I was living in East Tennessee at the time. Maybe not the best place to write a book on the Twilight Zone, but I did enough interviews to sort of fool myself in the, that I would be the guy to write that book. Donna Douglas came to town and she to shoot a commercial. I ran down and I interviewed her. And then a couple of actors who got their start at a local theater, Claude Aikens and Fritz Weaver, were in Twilight Zones. I interviewed them. Yeah. And then I walked into a bookstore and I had that experience that a lot of writers have. They... There it was, Mark Scott Secrees, The Twilight Zone Companion. And I couldn't even get angry because Mark did such a great job on that book. But I always thought I was owed a Twilight Zone book. And the question was, you know, uh, then Martin Graham's added to it by doing an even deeper dive into the history of the series. And, and I was so, when my daughter Becky turned 15, I decided to share The Twilight Zone with her. And we did a four smarts through all five seasons of The Twilight Zone. And we got to... Um, the third or fourth episode, and I turned to her afterwards and jokingly said, let that be a lesson to you. And then that became a running joke. But after a couple of weeks, I realized, wait a minute, there's a book here. This is my Twilight Zone book. 35 years later, I got my Twilight Zone book by sharing this with my daughter. And I realized you just have to extract these life lessons and these cautionary tales out here. And that's something which hadn't been done before. You know, and it had to be something different. It had to be something new. So, and that was what was new. Can you give us an example, maybe? One of the, one of the lessons in the book? Um, you know, the, the joking one, because the one that it started, it all was escape clause. Uh, with David Wayne playing the hypochondriac who makes the deal with the devil. And he signs the contract, and there's an escape clause. And when that episode was over, that's the very first episode where I turned to Becky and said, uh, let that be a lesson to you. And then I, and then I kind of thought about it and thought... Just think about in this country, all the people who signed mortgages uh, back in 2007, 2008, and how much trouble we got into because they didn't read their contracts. They didn't know what was in them. And, you know, when you talk about a deal with the devil, th that, that got the whole country into trouble. And I saw after I thought about it for a second, I turned back to Becky and said, you know, I kind of mean this. Read contracts. Read, know, know what you're signing. Yeah. And uh, so that became sort of the first one. But there are so many, uh, you know, monsters to do on Maple Street, which is grown in resonance. Mm -hmm. uh, probably the episode which has grown in resonance more than any other, yeah. because as we become more divided as a people and as a country and as a as a world, this episode speaks to that. Even though Rod Serling was writing about the McCarthy era and the Red Scare, that episode actually seems more resonant today. And it is very true that we ain't going to make it. Divided we fall, and that's the lesson of that episode. Uh, divided we fall, and if we don't find a way to get along with each other and communicate with each other and talk to each other, yeah. we are not going to make it. And and there's Rod Serling telling us that from an episode that aired in 1959, 60 years ago. Um, that's pretty impressive. I don't know any other television show that can do that. Now. Here at Sailing Fest, you're doing a, a presentation. I don't want to steal the thunder of that, but can you give us a bit of a flavor of it? Well, last year I did a, a, a paper, a presentation on the parallels between uh, uh, Rod Serling and Mark Twain. Uh, now, your people can't see me, but, you know, <laughs> I've been playing Mark Twain for 40 years with less makeup every year. Um, and coming off that, I thought, you know, there's as much resonance for Charles Dickens as there is for Twain. So uh, this year, uh, my wife and I, Sarah, have put together a presentation, which is part paper uh, and part performance uh, about the parallels and the echoes of Dickens that are in the Twilight Zone, of which there are many. So um, that, 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 that's part of it. We, this is our third year here. The first year, we also do a two-person play based on my book. And the first year, we staged that over at the Forum. And so uh, each year we started to come up with something a little bit different to, uh, to present. So in, in the play, are you like acting out scenarios? What, what's in that? It is. It's, it's, it's basically uh, examples of life lessons and little bits and pieces from, from episodes, uh, along with autobiographical stuff and, and fun. S some of it's sketch comedy. Some of it is done as almost sketch comedy. Like there's a point in the, the show where Sarah plays an obsessed Twilight Zone fan who's like every uber Twilight Zone fan in one very uh, up person. And uh, it's a very funny moment in the show uh, where she gets to, uh, and everybody kind of relates to it because we all are that fan mm -hmm. in some way. 
So yes, that's it, it, we have a lot of fun with it. We just did that last week with, and Ann Serling joined us uh, afterwards for Q and A, and that was a lot of fun. Well, Mark, I think we'll leave it there, but it's been such a pleasure to catch up with you. I, I'm glad we finally got to do it, and maybe we could. Let's do this on a longer talk. Yeah, let's have me on the show, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll talk for an hour or whatever. I use, you know, like I said, dude, put a quarter in me, and I'll keep talking. <laughs> well, I'm going to bring a couple of quarters. Thank you so much. And Sailing, author of As I Knew Him, my dad, Rod Sailing. No, no, I just came over for this especially. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was quite a day. But um, yeah, I, uh, I went yesterday to pay my respects to your dad. I went to the cemetery, which was just lovely. Um, so Anne, thank you for speaking to me today. Oh, it's just so nice to be here and nice to meet you at last. Thank you. We spoke last time, it seems like a million years ago now, that this was quite a, a cathartic experience for you. Has it, has it achieved what you would hope it, it achieved, you know, what you wanted it to do? It's actually achieved more than I anticipated because of all the people that I hear from that could relate to the grief in the book or people that uh, thought of my dad as their dad, who many that actually went through tumultuous childhoods and found watching the Twilight Zone was, was just a huge release for them. And I was quite moved by that and also by people who told me they became writers because of my father. So these, were, these are all things that I was so grateful to hear and, uh, and I know my dad would just have been so honored and, and grateful as well. Now, he was a very humble man, but we're here today, 60 years later, to, to celebrate you know, one of his achievements. What, what do you think he, he would think of, of what's going on here today? Oh, he would be more surprised than anyone. He, he was once quoted as saying that he didn't think his writing would stand the test of time. So to be here 60 years later in his hometown, which was always in, so important to him. He, he, again, so grateful, so honored. Last time we spoke as well, I understand you were working on a new book. How are you getting on with that? Still working on that book. I'm, I think I'm finally, Knockwood, reaching, reaching some conclusion with it. But it's, it's been a long journey. But I think actually the time spent with it has improved the book. So hopefully, we'll see. Can you give us an estimate? Uh, not yet, I can't. <laughs> I wish I could. Tomorrow, I wish. No. The, um, the Rod Sailing Books imprint, uh, we, you can buy his whole sort of work in print. Is, is that going to carry on in any way? Uh, yes. Um, we have these on Amazon now and plan to have them as long as they keep selling. Yeah, it's and today we have a gentleman by the name of um, Mark Olshaker here. What, what's his connection to your dad? Uh, well, he can tell you this story, and to hear it from him will, will be more powerful. But he actually met my dad when, when he, Mark, was 15. And uh, he formed a friendship with my dad as a 15-year-old. And shortly after he heard my dad talk, my father was rushed to the hospital with chest pains. This is way, way, many, many years ago. And Mark sent my father a get well card in Washington and, and the card was eventually forwarded to my dad in California. And from there they, they formed this friendship. And Mark actually is the one who wanted to write a biography about my dad. And, and he can speak to that more. But um, yeah, so he was actually very helpful to me with the professional side of my father when I was writing my memoir. So we forged a friendship, and it's just been wonderful. Are you going to be here for the whole weekend? We'll be here t all day tomorrow. Yes. And um, I, I can't really put into words what an honor it is to meet you and to, to be able to sit down and speak to you like this. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was a wonderful interview we did years ago, and I appreciate that and meeting you. Mark Olshaker filmmaker and author, and co-author of the Mindhunter series of books. We've just stepped out for a bit of peace and quiet. <laughs> Things are getting a bit rowdy in there. Um, and I'm standing here with Mark Olshaker, and people are going to know that name from 
the Mindhunter book and the, the TV show, but you're here for a very special reason today, aren't you? Well, um, Rod Serling was my great hero, and uh, I was lucky enough to have him befriend me as a young man. I was a teenager at the time, uh, 15, I think, so I knew him for the last 10 years of his life. He was a tremendous inspiration to me, a very generous guy, um, and probably the sensibility that I have today as a writer and wanting to know why people do the things that they do, which of course is the essence of true crime. Uh, That probably all comes from Rod and now uh, his daughter Anne is one of my closest friends. So you you met when you were 15? Yes, uh, he came to Washington for an event and uh, I sort of wrangled my way in. I went up and uh, very timidly asked him for his autograph on a copy of Stories from the Twilight Zone. And what happened was, it was very interesting, uh, he, le- he was extremely kind and uh, gave a great speech. Afterwards, apparently, I found out he went right to the hospital, he was having chest pains. Mm-hmm. I sent him a get well card, um, just saying I was the one, the little kid who, you know, his book you signed. He wrote to me back and that started a friendship and a mentorship, if you will, that lasted 10 years and he was a tremendous influence on my life and uh, uh, probably all, most of my sensibilities were formed by my, um, by my study of him, my inspiration, uh, the Twilight Zone, all of the other things he did. Um, and I was, I was a fan who was lucky enough to become a friend and I'm sure uh, all of that is, uh, is reflected in the novels I've written, the television shows I've done, and the Mindhunter series and all the books that have come after it. Yeah, yeah. So you're, speaking of Mindhunter, just before my next uh, question, could you explain your area of expertise? Well, I am a writer uh, and, I, uh, and a documentary film producer, and I actually got into the whole thing by doing a documentary for NOVA, the PBS science series in America, on uh, uh, the FBI's behavioral science unit. Um, We did a film which was called Mind of a Serial Killer, which was nominated for an Emmy. We did very well. And when the profiling pioneer, John Douglas, got ready to retire, he said, he called me and said, do you think anybody would be interested in my story? And I said, well, I certainly think so, but let's find out. So, uh, one of the smartest things I think I did was came, come up with the name Mindhunter, yeah. but uh, we, we sold the book, it did very well, and we just kept going. So I think uh, our latest book, The Killer Across the Table, is our eighth true crime book uh, on profiling, criminal investigative analysis, and uh, really about why things, people do the things they do. What is the human condition at the extremes, if you will? So when we, when we think of Rod Serling, uh, what, what do you think the link is there? I think the link is empathy. Uh, the most important thing in life to Rod, I think, was that people be treated well and, uh, and that every, everybody was equal in their way. And I think along with empathy is the idea that why do people do the things they do, which I think certainly preoccupied Rod throughout his career and that's exactly what detectives and police do is they figure out why do people do the things they do and to be a profiler like John Douglas and what I've learned from him and his FBI colleagues over the years is you have to not only you yes you have to get inside the head of the killer which is an empathy is sort of a reverse empathy of a sort um, as we've seen in the Mindhunter television series on Netflix, which we're very happy with. But you also have to put yourself in the position of the victim and understand the victimology, whether it was a high-risk crime, whether it was a low-risk crime. In other words, just like in, uh, in a drama, what was the interaction between the participants in the scene? And, that, and once you can tell that story, uh, you can... You can uh, uh, you you can help hopefully solve the case. So a lot of, a lot of it is really storytelling and putting things into a logical uh, order. Mark, I'm going to ask you a very broad question here, but you know, people like me, I I, I wasn't even born by the time Rod passed, and I, I'll never get the chance to know him. Um, so it is kind of a broad question when when I just ask, what was he like? 
He was extremely kind and very funny. Uh, that's probably something that doesn't come across in the Twilight Zone persona, but he had a tremendous sense of humor, told great jokes, and the main thing, again, going back to empathy, was he was very interested in other people. He, he didn't owe me anything as a fan, except clearly he could see, and I've talked to Anne about this over the years, uh, that he could see that he meant enough to me that he felt a responsibility to that relationship. So he was, he read scripts that I'd written, uh, he read my first professional scripts when I became a television uh, writer, and uh, he was just very kind, very generous, very supportive, the kind of person who really enjoys seeing other people succeed. Um, and, you know, we've, a lot of people have said this, but he really loved humanity. He hated a lot of things about humanity. He hated prejudice, he hated violence, but he really was a lover of humanity. And when you think about his whole career, basically 25 professional years, he was like a comet that came across our sky and then left us and devastated us all. That was lovely. Mark, thank you so much for taking thank time. Thank you, thank you for having me. Join me next time in the final instalment of our Sailing Fest 2019 coverage for days two and three of Sailing Fest, where I explore more of Binghamton and speak with some friends of the show, and then head to New York City to catch up with some more Twilight Zone friends.